Hello and welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr., where we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. My name is Josh Tate, and with season one, what we want to try to do is facilitate conversations on important topics that will encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite our differences without compromising your faith. So I hope you had a chance to listen to the very first episode with Pastor Bob and Imam Majid on why the hate and how an evangelical pastor from Texas uh, became friends with an imam and that unique relationship. It really is such a great starting point on why they do what they do and a picture of how faith drives us to love people despite our faith differences or political differences uh, without compromising your faith. And so if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to that, please go back and take a listen because it really is foundational to what the Bold Love podcast is all about. But today, we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Russell Moore, who is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. The ERLC is the moral and public policy entity of the nation's largest Protestant denomination. He is also the author of many books, including Onward and The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home, which was actually named a Christianity Today's 2019 book of the year. So we're so thrilled to be able to chat with Dr. Moore today on a variety of topics, including some of the criticism he's faced in his role and how he sees where bridge building and advocacy intersect and much more. If you haven't heard, we have a very exciting and impressive guest list for season one. So as you listen today, please subscribe so you don't miss any of these great stories. Uh, the laughs and all the things that go into these interviews, I think will be really impactful for those who listen. So I want to encourage you to share it with others and rate our podcast if you feel like it was impactful for you. And we appreciate you listening today. So now before we get to Dr. Moore's interview, I want to introduce you to the host of Bold Love Podcast, Dr. Bob Roberts Jr. Hey, Pastor Bob, look at us. We did it. We have a, a podcast launch and we're pretty much pros now, right? Because <laughs> we got one under our belt with Imam Majid. So tell me, I know you've been wanting to launch something like this for a while, uh, telling your stories. So what do you think so far? I'm pumped. I mean, I had no clue we would have all the downloads that we did, responses that we did, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, you know, you had to talk me into doing this. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm pretty excited. You wanted to do this podcast. I didn't have to talk you too much into it. But overall, I think uh, the, the success of it so far can really attest to um, the conversations that people want to be a part of and want to hear about. So I think that's incredibly important as well. And, and with that, as we transition into our episode two, um, Dr. Moore. So tell us a little bit about your relationship with Dr. Moore, uh, the work he does at the ERLC, and why his work is important and how it's tied to the work that you're involved in. Uh, two things. ERLC stands for Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Ethics. No one has done more uh, to promote good, healthy race relations and to deal with racism than Russell Moore. And it's something all of us are dealing with as pastors. It doesn't matter if you're at a multi-ethnic church or your church, you know, is mono-ethnic. Uh, the reality is we're all dealing with this. And he's giving us tools and, and permission and deep thinking in order to deal with these issues. The other thing is religious freedom. Mm -hmm. And you and I are pretty passionate about that. Yeah. That's what we do with our organization. We deal with uh, persecution and, and a lot of th different things. And, and we, we uh, deal with religious freedom for other faiths as well. And so uh, he's done a phenomenal job with that. I mean, he's, he's got a foundation uh, for his positions and what he's saying. And so uh, I absolutely am excited about him. Yeah, so with that, let's go ahead and head into our interview. 
here on the Bold Love Podcast with the president of the ERLC, our friend, Dr. Russell Moore. So I am excited on our second edition of Bold Love Podcast to have one of my personal favorites and heroes, the Russell Moore. Thank you, Russell Moore, for joining us. Man, I really appreciate this. Oh, it's my honor. Well, you're one of my heroes as well. And so I was looking forward to having the opportunity to, to talk today. I followed you a long time. I read your stuff. I uh, keep up with you. Uh, you've impacted my thinking. I'm grateful for you. I think you're uh, you one of the prophetic voices in the United States. And uh, definitely... Uh, as, a, as a fellow Southern Baptist, I'm grateful for you. We, we so desperately need your voice. Well, I, know it's, you. I know it's probably not easy sometimes uh, trying, to, trying to do that, uh, but you do a phenomenal job. And, and I'm amazed, uh, frankly, which is why I want you on today. I want to talk about some things about how you handle yourself. Uh, I've seen you come under fire, uh, and, and and yet you don't seem to get ruffled by things like I've seen other people. Uh, you hold your position, you're kind, you're firm, uh, but you don't get into the backbiting and the trite things that I see. Mm. And so I, I, just, I just want you to know personally, as a Southern Baptist, sir, I'm grateful and you do us proud. Well, thank you. That's very encouraging. That means a lot to me. Now, I'm intrigued also by the fact uh, you and I are a little similar in that we're both uh, Southern boys. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in deep East Texas. You grew up in Southern Mississippi. I'm curious, how did your roots in Mississippi impact who you are today? Well, I'd, I'm not sure that I would even know uh, all of the ways uh, that it influenced uh, who I am today because everything just about is, is traceable back uh, to there in in every possible way. Uh, and so not only in terms of childhood, but early ministry uh, taking place in that context. And, and part of it is sometimes when people hear Mississippi, if they're not from there, they're thinking of Tupelo, Jackson, uh, sort of, you know, William Faulkner, uh, Mississippi. But where I came from uh, is much more New Orleans. Uh, than it is uh, it is Tupelo. We're we're right on the on the coast, uh, spilling out from New Orleans. So yeah, it was a majority Catholic uh, population, uh, large um, large Slavic uh, immigrant uh, population, uh, some second, third, fourth generation, uh, and a very large Vietnamese uh, population that that came in after the the fall of Saigon. So I've learned working in the world, uh, that I really didn't let go of, of a lot of what I received growing up, but I sure did gain a lot uh, yeah. in the rest of the world. Vietnam being one of those places where I've worked for 30 years. I, I knew the Great Commission, but I really didn't know the world. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that discovering the world had a huge impact on how I did ministry and the Great Commission, getting exposed to people how they thought, uh, to a large degree, I was raised kind of in a religious echo chamber, a very small rural uh, town. And did you experience any of that or not? Well, I did, I think a, a little bit, uh, even from the very beginning, because I was in a family that was half Baptist, half Catholic, Oh, wow. uh, and the half that was Baptist was really Baptist, and the half that was Catholic <laughs> was really Catholic. Uh, and uh, and I was I was sort of in the minority uh, as a, a, as a an actual evangelical Christian in my high school context, middle school context, everything else. We uh, served a church that was right down the street from a, an Air Force base, and. Every, we were the only ones, I think, in the church that weren't either active duty or retired uh, Air Force or, or one of the very few who were. And so the, the entire congregation was shifting by about a third uh, every year. And people were coming in from, from all over the place. And so I had, to, uh, I had to sort of learn to adapt to that. 
uh, really early on in delightful ways. That was the best ministry experience I think I've ever had. Uh, it, it was fantastic. Do you think that's why you've been able to cross cultures as effectively Pro- as you have? Probably so. Probably all that because um, knowing, uh, I think that when you've been a minority uh, in the minority somewhere, you you start to either have a kind of resentment uh, or you start to have an understanding of, I, I need to try to understand the context where I am and understand where I'm coming from so I don't lose myself. And uh, I, I think that the Lord tended to put me in situations where that was the case. So it's very rare that I would have early on in my, in my life that I would have thought everybody here is just like me. I just was in very many situations like that. So given your background, the impact early on, uh, as the uh, head of the ERLC, uh, you have to challenge issues, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's race or religious freedom or anything. Yeah, uh, that's tough. Yeah, uh, I mean, by by nature, your job is confrontation. How do you handle that? Well, uh, I'm not naturally a very confrontational person, um, and so it's. I think there are some people who actually enjoy uh, confrontation. I'm, I'm really not uh, one of them, uh, but I'm in a situation where there are so many things that have to be addressed for the long term, uh, and they're almost uh, always constantly changing. And we're in a time now where it, I mean, everything is so fraught with, uh, with really a very shallow level of thinking uh, across the board and tension just in our culture right now. There's a a man who's been working in uh, ministry justice issues that I respect uh, greatly. He said that whenever he could, he finds an issue that hasn't already been tribally encamped. And he helps people to see that issue and then can build out from there. Uh, and I think that's exactly right. But the, the problem is there are so few of those issues in, in American culture right now, just with the way uh, there's, a, there, there's such a social media uh, culture and a sense of uh, let's monetize and politicize every possible thing that, that we can. Uh, that, that, that's more of a challenge. We're living in a very unique time. Mm-hmm. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned about it. I'm yeah. very concerned about it. Uh, how, how do you interpret the times, if you will, uh, with all the different issues going on politically, health-wise, economically, uh, class, uh, class-wise? Yeah. I mean, it's serious. You know, I, I'm a, I tell people often I'm a long-term, I'm a short-term pessimist and I'm a long-term optimist. And I define long-term in terms of trillions of years. Uh, so I'm, I'm long-term, I'm, I'm hopeful. But in the short term, it's, it's, really, it's really fraught right now. And so when you mentioned uh, that a, a few minutes ago about sort of the sort of challenges that I have uh, in my job, I can't help but think I wish that that were unique. Uh, but, but re- and there was a time when that was unique, but right now, Every single pastor or leader essentially is in my job uh, all the time. And uh, so I'm, I'm talking every day. I mean, especially in these days, I'm talking to pastors who are exhausted with just, uh, you know, dealing with conspiracy theories and social media feuds among people in their congregations and, and all of those, those sorts of things. Uh, and being second guessed on on everything in terms of where does that fit you in the tribe uh, in ways that can be just exhausting. And I think if you look around the culture right now, I, mean, I, I one of my sons uh, works as a, a, a part time clerk in a grocery store. And so he gets to see, you know, all the people who are screaming at each other over masks in the in the aisles of the grocery store. I mean, so it's, it's not anything that's unique. Uh, to one area of American life as opposed to the other. But I can't help but think that there's an exhaustion 
that comes with all of that. I just don't think that can, can sustain itself for long. And when that exhaustion hits, then it's going to be incumbent uh, on, on, on us to say, okay, well, where do we go from here? What, what's, a, what's a better way that we can live? We're never going to do that uh, perfectly. That's always going to be with us, but it can be better than this. Yeah, speaking of pastors, Dr. Moore, um, especially being in an election year, how would you pastor to a congregation of Republicans, Democrats, and independents? How would, how, what would you suggest there? Well, what I would say is if you're a pastor who has a congregation of Republicans, Democrats, and independents that you're trying to navigate that, uh, stop and pray and thank God that <laughs> that's your reality. Because it's not the reality for very many people because of the way that people sort themselves uh, in terms of, of people who are ideologically just like them. And, and often they confuse that with their identity in, in Christ. So if you're, if you're saying, I've got this here in my congregation that I'm trying to navigate, you're actually part of the way there because you, you do have people who are able to worship together uh, and yet disagree. Uh, but even if you don't, uh, you still are always going to have that in terms of your mission field. And so uh, what I would say is uh, don't, ever, uh, uh, don't ever yield to the temptation to make Christianity a means to an end, no matter what that end is. Uh, and so you, you really need to have, you're going to have people who are going to say to you, oh, uh, I, I really want this guy who's running for county supervisor to come give his testimony the week before the election uh, and that sort of thing. And you, you really want to maintain your ability over the years to prove that this isn't, Christianity isn't just a way to try to get people to do stuff and, and buy stuff, that this really is a meeting with, with a transcendent God. And so uh, sometimes you will have people who will say, and I, I had this conversation just yesterday when he said, what do I do in terms of, you know, this crazy election year and we're, we're leading up to the election. And I said, look, uh, you really can't, uh, no matter what you're trying to do, you really can't shape and form the consciences of your church and your mission field in time <laughs> for the, the 2020 uh, election. Uh, but what you can do is to shape and form uh, the consciences of your people in time for, say, the 2028 presidential election, where you might have a, a situation where we, we don't have the sort of, uh, sort of at-each-other's-throats conflict uh, going on. Uh, so that, that would be my, my counsel. Uh, and to say, you know, we, we are just living in um, a, an especially difficult time because politics, and, and by politics, I mean not just uh, electoral politics, but just all of the tribal uh, realities, has become uh, a, a religion. And then you add to that, um, you add to that the sort of, you know, I was, I was writing about this the other day because it's been on my mind for a while. Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, often this unhealthy craving for controversy. So there are some times when all of us are called to engage in controversy. You know, Paul uh, rebukes the, the false teachers in Galatia and, and rebukes Peter uh, in Galatians too. But there's a kind of quarrelsomeness that, that seeks controversy and, and has a craving for it, as Paul put it. And I think the reason for that and I learned this early on in ministry uh, because I was talking to a, a man who had mentored me in, in ministry. And he said, you know, there's a certain kind of person who watches soap operas. At the time, soap operas were a thing uh, more than they are now. <laughs> yeah. uh, you could think of it as reality television now, <laughs> right. uh, or maybe not even that anymore. But he said, there's a kind of person who watches soap operas, and then there's a kind of person who creates soap operas. But it's for the same person, the same purpose. There, there's a sense of creating a kind of drama that will give me a feeling of life. And so often you're dealing with hurt people uh, who are just trying to get some sense of life and identity, and this is the way that they do it. It just doesn't work. Uh, 
So it's a unique, it's a unique time in terms of not that that goes on, but it's unique in terms of how intense it is. And so I would just say to pastors and leaders, hold on, don't, don't give up. Don't, don't grow discouraged. Um, and, and you're, you're not, you're not alone in that. Uh, to some degree or another, everybody's going through that. So just, just hang on. I was raised in a culture where pastors did not endorse political candidates. Right. You know, they didn't put the signs in their yard. Yep. Uh, and they didn't have social media back then. Right. But I've always gone out of my way uh, not to let people know who I, who I would vote for. Yep. I've always been careful what I say from the pulpit, even social media. I've got my views, yep. but I'm careful with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's, I've, I was talking to some young pastors the other day and, and they were being pushed by members in their church. You need to come out stronger for this particular candidate and, and talk about this particular issue in this particular party, because, you know, that's Christian and this other group yeah. isn't. And, and, and they were struggling with it because, uh, they don't want to do that. Yeah. And I'm prone to agree with them, but they have these other mega church pastors who do endorse candidates and media and everything else. What's your view on that? Well, I don't, uh, I don't judge anybody else who has a different view before his own master or his or her own master that, that, uh, that person stands or falls. But I can tell you in terms of my view, uh, I don't endorse candidates. I made an ordination vow uh, actually because I had been working in the political life and uh, there was a, a man on the ordination council that said, Hey, are you ever going to be endorsing candidates for, for office? And I said, no. And I'm really glad that he asked me that and sort of, put me on the record uh, there with my conscience because, and I wouldn't have anyway, because I lived through that as a 15 year old when I went through a, a real spiritual crisis. And a lot of it had to do with that very thing because I could see, you know, at the time there was putting out these voter guides about, you know, this, this candidate has the Christian view on these things. And this candidate has the anti-Christian view on these things. And, and I would look at that and say, well, yeah, but you, you're choosing what the, the issues are here uh, in a way that's really artificial. And one of the things that that did for me was to say, uh, maybe that's what Christianity is. It's just sort of operating the way that, that Baal operated for Ahab uh, as sort of a way to put a seal on top of what you would have people to do anyway. And I, I was thrown into a a real crisis over that, that thankfully I was able to read C.S. Lewis, who, who talked, you know, from the grave in his writings uh, in a way that it wasn't so much what he said as the tone of voice. He, he really wasn't trying to sell me or enlist me in, in anything. He was just bearing witness. Um, and so I think that's what's, uh, I think that's what's important. And what I will say is this, um, I, yeah, there are a lot of things to be discouraged about. This is one of the things I'm encouraged about because I really don't see a lot of that going on with the uh, coming generation of mean, pastors and leaders, really no matter where they are denominationally or, or anything, there's not a lot of that. Uh, and I think, uh, and wherever they are politically, and sometimes I don't even know, uh, but I, I think that's, I think that's changed. And some of that probably has to do with the fact that, the American cultural context has changed uh, in, in some ways. How do we be bridge builders? So, you know, we want to we want to uh, support our police back the blue. Mm -hmm. We also want people to know that black lives matter. Right. Uh, and, and, and so our church is multi-ethnic. Yeah. And so sometimes it's tough. Yeah. How do you build bridges uh, where it's not either or, but both and? Uh, I think that's one of the biggest uh, struggles that we have as as a church is the temptation to sometimes the temptation is to put an either or where the gospel puts a both and 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 uh, you know it's it's either God or Mammon uh, either Jesus or uh, or uh, or uh, Baal th those sorts of things but often the reverse is true also we put either ors where there is a both and. Um, and I think the way to do that sometimes is in some, is by paying attention to 
to what sorts of uh, ways to reach people, to show them on the basis of what they already believe, uh, how that fits with what it is that, that you're talking about at the moment. So for instance, I know a pastor who, and I think this was brilliant, um, it, it was during one of these uh, really uh, intense uh, weekends after one of, uh, one of the, the incidents that we have had uh, over the past several years, where what he did was to have uh, an African-American woman, the mother of uh, young men, uh, get up and pray for the police officers uh, in their community. Wow. And then he had a police officer uh, in that congregation get up and pray for young <laughs> black men who were, who were being shot. And wow. I think what, what he was doing in that was exactly what the Bible talks about, about bearing one another's burdens. And to and to say to uh, the congregation, uh, th this all of this is is about us, because if any part of the body is hurting, all of the the body is hurting, and uh, those sorts of moments, uh, I think, over time can can build up in good ways. I'm curious uh, to piggyback on that question. What your thoughts are on the concept of learning? how to separate people from the issues or the policies? Well, um, I think a lot of that has to do with, uh, it's easier, I think, to start with the personal mm -hmm. and then to work out uh, from there. And that's one of the reasons it's so difficult right now because everything is so stratified where, you know, as uh, I, I had a friend who was sending me a map about just what different uh, cultural realities were there depending upon how far you were from a Walmart or how far you were from a Whole Foods. And uh, this is not a Christian who was sending this to me. And I said, uh, huh, I said, I've never thought about that. I said, I'm equidistant from a Walmart and a Whole Foods. And he said, well, I'm not surprised by that. But there aren't very many people who, who are. And so you don't really have the opportunity uh, just in, in living life and, and everybody's busy to actually have a connection with somebody uh, who is different from you in, in that Whole Foods, Walmart sort of, uh, sort of uh, mindset. But if you do, and then across all the other uh, divisions that are there, but when you do, a couple of things start to happen. You either think to yourself, uh, I'm going to, because a lot of what takes place is sort of just a caricaturing of uh, people where we assume that the only thing true about them are the bad things that they say or do or believe. And the only thing true about us uh, are the good things that we say or do or believe. But if you really do have a personal connection, that is harder to do. You can still do it, but it's harder to do. How do you, uh, how do we break the deadlock? I mean, what would you say, okay, pastors, here's what you need to do. Uh, I, by the way, I was called from a major think tank today that want to mobilize the pastors, imams, and rabbis that I work with because they're worried about violence. Yeah. And they're saying, could, could you, in the cities where you have these relationships, uh, this is bad where we are. Yeah. And I listen to, I watch Twitter and I listen to social media and everything else. Sometimes I fear, fear we pastors are as bad as anybody at this. Yeah. Joking this stuff. Well, that's, that's why I think that 90% of it uh, is modeling something else. And, uh, and one of the ways that I think that's important is if you notice the way that Jesus, uh, the, the way that Jesus acted, uh, there are times when he initiates a, a controversy. Uh, there are times when he directly answers some sort, of, uh, some sort of controversial thing. And then there are a lot of times when he either reframes the question Whose, whose coin is this? Or he says, this is, this, is not, uh, this is not an issue that I'm going to engage. And he continues on uh, with his mission. 
And so I think that there's a certain amount of wisdom uh, to know because you're always going to have uh, people who are going to be expecting you to be in the middle of whatever real or fake tumult that there is going on at the moment. And you have to resist that uh, because uh, what happens is uh, you're going to get into a cycle that you can't get out of and you're going to lose yourself and you're going to lose your, um, your ultimate calling. And so just by, by modeling, I think, a sense of, uh, you know, the scripture talks about reasonableness uh, often and a sense of reasonableness and a sense of uh, transcendence. I think just, just living that, uh, and it's going to be difficult to do, but, you know, sooner or later, uh, if you do that long enough, people start to expect it from you. And uh, so just live through the discomfort of that and, and live a life that is reasonable and charitable. Don't, um, don't get into this. You know, honestly, a lot of what uh, most of the, the fights that we have aren't about issues at all. They're usually mostly about a sense of personal insult um, in the same way, you know, we were talking about uh, Mississippi uh, a few minutes ago that I was in a setting one time where somebody not knowing I was from Mississippi said something derogatory about Mississippi. And, you know, my, my response is, <laughs> well, you know, how dare you? You're, you're saying that about me and about my family and about whatever. That's the internal thing that goes through your mind. Um, and you want to just sort of put that person in his or her place. That really now applies to everything. And so it's mostly about how dare you call me stupid and evil. <laughs> but, you know, if we, if we follow Christ, then what we're going to do is to say, I'm going to be willing to be called stupid and evil sometimes. Wow. Uh, for the ability to be able to make a connection with this person in the long term. And I, I think that's hard to do, but it's necessary. So let me ask you, how do you handle personal criticism? Because I mean, you can't, yeah. you can't survive in the ministry today right. without it. Yeah. Uh, well, I think the, the main thing is to start from a place where you really do understand yourself in front of the judgment seat of Christ. Mm, that's, uh, that's what Paul's talking about in second Corinthians four, because we live in a time right now where there are judgment seats all over the place. <laughs> and so even if you're in ministry and you're the kind of person that says, I want to avoid criticism, uh, and, and I'm going to do that by just becoming the sort of person that people, uh, want me to be now, you know, that's not morally a good stance to have, but even if you wanted to have it, you won't be able to. And so there's a, a leadership guru uh, that he's not a Christian, but he's somebody I listen to all the time named Seth Godin, oh, yeah. who uh, really helpfully uh, talks about go onto Amazon and look at the one star reviews for uh, Moby Dick and the one star reviews for King Lear. Yeah, and, and, and things like that. I mean, that's always going to happen. And the danger is going to be that you're either going to turn into a quarrelsome person defending yourself all the time, or that you're going to become such a fearful risk averse person that you're never going to actually do anything because you're afraid of people. And the stakes of that are really high. So if you, if you look back, for instance, at what happened in the Jim Crow era, uh, you can just go back and, and read the minutes um, and, and the diaries and, and so forth of a lot of these pastors and leaders in white churches um, that, that wouldn't receive African-American uh, attendees into their churches. And often it was because they said, if I do that, it's only going to uh, create criticism and they're going to fire me. And if they fire me, somebody worse is going to come along. So I've got to steward my long-term influence. And they just slowly sort of adjusted their conscience to that. And so watch for those things in yourself and then uh, have 
a, a place where you go for criticism. Because often you're not going to have the objectivity to, you're going to be criticized sometimes rightly and sometimes wrongly. And you're not going to have the ability often to be able to tell what's what. Have people in your life that you trust and that you know, uh, that you respect, uh, and, and go to them uh, to help you to sort through from from what's right and what's wrong. And sometimes it's not even just what's a right criticism or what's a wrong criticism. Sometimes you're going to have to discern, is the problem here that I'm not communicating well and that I'm being misunderstood? Or is the problem that I'm communicating very well and, and I am being uh, understood? And that's the, the issue. You, you, need, you need people in your life, but they can't be random people. Uh, they have to be people that you, you know you can trust you and, and don't have, they're not dependent upon you and they're not, uh, they're not afraid of you, but they also, they love you and, and they actually want your ministry to go forward. That's good. Do you have someone like that? I do. I have several people like that. And frankly, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to do anything in ministry uh, without, without those people. Um, and, and those are people who are able to freely say, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that's probably, that's probably the case. Uh, or, uh, or come on. I mean, I, I've actually had some of those people say, uh, sort of the reverse uh, who've come in and said, Hey, uh, this is getting to you in a way where you're actually not, um, being who God called you to be. And I need you to, I need you to, to do that. I mean, you, you, we all need people like that uh, ongoingly. And that, that means long-term relationships. And I know there are a lot of people who don't have that uh, and they're, they're isolated. And sometimes we feel like there's no way to initiate it because it seems kind of awkward. Uh, but honestly, if you just will start to build just a couple, you don't need a lot, but a couple of those relationships, I think you'll be surprised at how open people are uh, to that if you don't have anybody in your life. You said something a minute ago uh, about the Jim Crow era and pastors who wanted uh, maybe to let African Americans come to their church, but they were afraid of their churches. I'm intrigued by this. You can challenge a person with any kind of sin, any kind of personal sin, you know, immorality, drunkenness, mm -hmm. personal sin, everybody's on board. Yeah, let's go get them, preacher. Mm -hmm. Man, you deal with cultural sin, like you bring up racism. Right. It's as if the church has an aversion to dealing with cultural sins. And yet, everyone would say, yes, racism is a sin, but. And mm -hmm. nobody ever camps out on Racism is a sin. Let, let's ask yeah. God to forgive us and, and let's move forward. It becomes an argument about a lot of things. Why do you think cultural sin is so hard, so much harder than personal sin for churches to deal with? Well, I don't think that that's where the division is uh, because, and I, I say that because, yes, people are willing for you to confront uh, personal uh, sorts of sin unless you're dealing with a personal sin that that person is attached to at the moment. <laughs> so, well, yes, pe <laughs> people, people are theoretically uh, fine with saying, uh, you know, infidelity to one's spouse is wrong until that person is wanting to say, I found my soulmate and it's somebody else. And how dare you interfere in this? Uh, and they're, they're usually uh, more than willing uh, to talk about social sin, as long as it is whatever social sins that they want, you know, that, that happens to line up with their, their tribe. But when it comes to race, uh, that, that is completely unique. And, uh, and one of the reasons for that, I think, is because race is not just another issue. It, it's something that uniquely encapsulates the idolatry of the flesh uh, and that sort of satanic 
uh, will to self and, and, and tribe exaltation and to dominion over someone else. So there's a, there's a unique aspect of idolatry present there, which is why somebody who does this, I mean, uh, this is, the playbook is, is just always the same, just with a few variations. Oh, you're a liberal, you're a, a communist, you're a Marxist, you're whatever, uh, you know, all of those sorts of things. Uh, when somebody's just dealing with something that the scripture talks about, all the place. I mean, Ephesians chapter three uh, is really clear on this stuff, and uh, and I think that I think that's why. It's one thing to get criticized from people because you're challenging them and so forth, but let's be honest about it. There's bullies out there. Oh yes, you had uh, a famous uh, painter on your podcast. I listened to it. I loved it. I listened to your uh, Exile Pods, our, our podcast this summer about your books and so forth. And, and I actually was just, you know, following the tweet uh, stream today. And somebody was very critical that you have this famous artist on. And I just, I, I thought to myself, really? You know, how, how do you handle the bullies? Because sometimes a pastor will get cornered, you know, by one guy who says, you know, I'm speaking for the whole church. And I mean, I mean, how do you handle the bullies? Because sometimes the problem is that bully will get a crowd, get a gang, mm -hmm. and then you've got real problems on your hand. How do you deal with that? What, what would you say to pastors that are dealing with bullies around them? I, I've tried to ignore them and yeah, that yeah. doesn't always work. What do you do? Well, uh, Sometimes what you have to do is to, to recognize, now, uh, it, I would say to any pastor, don't even pay attention to rando people on social media. Uh, I mean, really, unless you're a, you know, there's a certain kind of personality that can do that with, and it, it doesn't have any effect on them. But most people aren't. And usually then what happens is they start getting hyper vigilant about stuff they shouldn't be vigilant about, you know, uh, but, but often you're going to find that in terms of people either in the congregation or uh, out in the world. Uh, and, and, I, and a lot of times it's, again, the same sort of strategy. So somebody will come up to, uh, to the person and say, you know, people are concerned about whatever, you know, that's, that's, that's always the strategy that they do. That, that goes all the way, but that's happening to every uh, biblical figure. And I think what you have to do is to not give in to fear. So let's just suppose there may be a situation where what the bully is bringing to your attention is right. It's something that you do need to change. Maybe it's a blind spot uh, that you, you're right. But you shouldn't change that because you're afraid of the bully. Uh, or you're trying to appease the bully. You, you should change something because you think this is uh, the way that Jesus would have me to do it is a different way uh, and, and change it for that reason. Uh, but if you do so because you're sort of afraid of, of people, then you're never going to be able to satisfy that. I mean, it's just going to become, uh, it's just going to be more and more of that. And so I think the answer to that is to uh, have a clear sense even of what's, of what's going on. I had a pastor call me one time. He was uh, serving in a, a congregation. God had just blessed them. They were reaching uh, young people who had never had anything to do with the, the church before. But he had a group of people in his congregation that were just constantly second guessing everything that, that he did. And he called me and said, I'm going to quit and, and I'm going to leave. And I said, okay, well, tell me what's going on. And he did. And I said, how many of these people are there? Uh, uh, what percentage of the congregation would you say this is? He said, maybe 5%. And I said, well, why would you leave the 95% that uh, God is blessing uh, because of this 5% uh, 
and then go down the road where you're going to have another 5% about something else. Uh, instead, have a sense of perspective about that. And often what you'll find is, I mean, I'll go back to Seth Godin again. He has this little book called The Dip, mm-hmm. where he, he talks about the fact that really everything that succeeds uh, only succeeds because it gets to the point of being hard and people either give up or they plow through it. Uh, now, that takes some discernment because there are people in abusive, toxic, spiritually abusive, toxic, uh, bullying sorts of ministry contexts that I have said, you should leave. You can't, you can't really carry out your calling uh, being in that context. But a lot of the time, uh, what needs to happen is just that person uh, persevering and not getting into the mindset of um, expecting to defend oneself all the time. I, I think that's a very unhealthy uh, place to be. There's sometimes when you have to, but very rarely. Uh, most of the time, uh, trust God and, and trust other people to defend you. And then take, take issue when you see people, uh, other people being bullied. Uh, that's what has to happen, yes. is rather than sort of shrinking back and saying, well, we'll just see how that plays out. When you see it happening to someone else, that's when you step in and say, no, this isn't the way uh, that, that we as the, the people of Christ are, are called to act. Um, I think that's a better way to go. Dr. Moore, we always ask our guests this one question because we do have people of uh, various faiths listening to the Bold Love podcast, but we always ask our guests, what does loving your neighbor mean to you? Uh, Loving your neighbor uh, means recognizing the image of God uh, in that person and not just in an abstract category but in terms of this person in front of me right now. So this person's not a project, this person's not a category, this person is a a person. And one of the things that really has just sort of embedded in my mind is there's a a passage in Marilyn Robinson's Gilead uh, novel where she's she's quoting uh, the elderly pastor, John Ames, who says that everybody that he meets he thinks to himself, what does God require of me in this encounter right now? Mm. And I really took that as kind of, uh, I was kind of convicted about that because uh, there are a lot of times where you just are, you're focused on something else and you feel like something's a distraction uh, that's taken place. But to think, wait a minute, uh, God saw to it that I would be in this conversation right now, what does he require of me? Um, and, and that sort of helps me to, uh, to, to look at that. But then also I think to know, to know not just human nature, but to know particular human beings. And, and I'm so struck by that with Jesus, who, especially in the Gospel of John, he encounters these people and he knows them. Uh, so he knows Nathaniel. I saw you under the fig tree. He knows the Samaritan woman that he encounters uh, at the well. Um, and that sort of, of knowing and connection of, of individual human beings and, and not just whatever they, I mean, sometimes, uh, sometimes you're, you're sitting around, you're having abstract conversations about things and yet get into the point where you recognize, okay, this is somebody who it, it, I know is a human being made in the image of God. I know is a, somebody who is existing by common grace uh, and somebody who is, is a fallen sinner like me, is hurting like me, uh, and, to, and to connect with that. So four easy questions about Russell Moore. Okay. Spiritual disciplines every day. What do you do? Read scripture, uh, of course, and I pray, but I, I found the best way for me to pray. And this is just me. This isn't anything that I would uh, prescribe to anybody else. But uh, the best way for me to pray is to write my prayers 
um, because I'm just made the sort of way that I can, uh, it, it reaches more of a, a deeper part of me. I, I sort of find out what it is that I really want to pray about if I write them. Uh, and, and write them in a way, uh, a helpful thing for me is, uh, and someone counseled this about some other matter, but it's, it's really been life-changing for me, is to write them in something that you're not ever going to look back at or that you're even going to keep. And the reason for that is because there's a tendency then to sort of write with your future self in view or whoever else is going to read this in view. But if you just write and have uh, these are, the, you're sort of pouring your heart out to God. Uh, that's helpful. And then also uh, I've always found it helpful to pray while I walk. And so I'll, I'll do a lot of walking and, and praying while I'm walking. And that's, you know, I think you just have to find how God has, has designed you uh, best to be able to, to do it best. But that's what works for me. That's good. Uh, who's your favorite theologian? Oh, my favorite theologian um, would probably have to be Irenaeus of Lyon, early, or early theologian uh, in the church. And what's your favorite food? My mother's fried shrimp. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Is that, a, is that a New Orleans kind of uh, style to it? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, New Orleans, coastal Mississippi. But we, you know, we lived right on the water, and so we have fresh shrimp all the time. And she, uh, she can fry them better than, than anybody on planet Earth. <laughs> the last and most important question, what do you want to know about Texas? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you something. I work with so many Texans that I feel like I know uh, almost everything I need to know about Texas. <laughs> oh my God. I appreciate this. Any advice you'd give me on anything? Uh, I, I don't think there's any advice you need, except uh, I don't know uh, what kind of caffeine pills you take to do everything. <laughs> you do. <laughs> I was wondering the same thing. <laughs> I drink a lot of coffee. Well, there you have it. Our interview with the president of the ERLC, Dr. Russell Moore. We are honored that you would listen and hope that you were impacted by this conversation that we had with him today. If you were, we would love for you to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast and share it with others on social media if it has impacted you at all. Uh, for more information on the podcast, including show notes and different references we've made along the conversation, you can get that at bobrobertsjr.com. That's bobrobertsjr.com. Click podcast, and you can get all the information right there. So thanks again for joining us. And remember, at the Bold Love Podcast, we want to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, how to better love your neighbor, and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. We'll see you next time on the Bold Love Podcast.